Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. When you're deciding what to wear in the morning or on the viability of some activity for the weekend, you'll likely turn to a weather app to see what the forecast holds. My guest today would suggest supplementing that habit with another, actually going outside, looking at the sky and feeling the air in order to engage in an ancient and satisfying practice and build a more intimate relationship with the weather and the world around you. His name is Tristan Gooley, and he's a master outdoorsman, expert natural navigator, and global adventurer, as well as the author of the book, The Secret World of Weather, How to Read Signs in Every Cloud, Breeze, Hill, Street, Plant, Animal, and Dewdrop. Tristan and I begin our conversation with how modern meteorological science is incredibly useful, but has also disconnected us from the weather signs right in front of our faces. We also discuss some of the different microclimates that can exist even on two different sides of a single tree. We then do a quick review of some of the basic scientific principles that underlie understanding the weather before turning to the concrete, research-backed, field-tested signs you can observe in your environment to predict the weather, like the shape and height of clouds, and why you should check those clouds from lunchtime onward. We then discuss whether it's true to the old saying, red sky at night, say, there's delight, red sky in morning, sailors take warning, and what changes in plants and the behavior of animals can tell us about the coming forecast. We end our conversation with how to get started today with predicting the weather using natural signs. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is weather. All right, Tristan Gooley, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me on. So we've had you on uh, last time to talk about how to navigate in nature, using nature to make our way in the world. You got a new book out called The Secret World of Weather, How to Read Signs in Every Cloud, Breeze, Hill, Street, Plant, Animal, and Dewdrop. And I really love this book. Like all your books, it's like, it's like a, I feel like whenever I read your book, I'm under, like, it's like uncovering the secret code that's been in front of my face this entire time on how to understand the world around me. This one's all about weather. And you start off the books making the claim that modern weather forecasting has really changed the way we view weather and disconnected it from us, even though we're checking it all the time. Uh, what do you mean by that? Well, the, uh, the scientists have done an amazing job of understanding weather. And it, it was such a tough challenge. I mean, there are a whole load of things that we, we solved before we got any handle on, on what the weather was doing. You know, in the past hundred years, there were still people saying, we're never going to understand it. It's beyond science. But, you know, the, we'll never achieve perfection. And that's not really the goal. But, but they have got to the point, the meteorologists are being able to say, this is what the big stuff is doing. And, you know, we're now at the stage, if you look at any, any forecast you, you rely on, whether it's internet, TV, it can be in a paper, it doesn't matter. You'll notice that there are some pretty big patterns there. We're talking about hundreds, if not thousands of miles. And that's what the scientists have had to do to get any handle on the weather. They've had to treat it as a, a big atmospheric phenomenon. But actually what we experience is what's going on in our neck of the woods, sometimes literally. So there's become this disconnect where the, the meteorologists are doing an amazing job and they are saving lives every day because they can keep an eye on the, the really big weather systems. And those are the, you know, for the most part, the things that cause serious and, and dangerous situations. Not always, and we'll probably come on to that. But our personal experience is, is far more intimate. It's, it's what's going on, you know, within a, a few hundred feet of us. And culturally, something quite, there's, there's become this huge disconnect where the, the, the scientists have given us this amazing stuff, but it's slightly taken our, our eye off, off our personal experience of the weather and all the wonderful signs that, that are all around us. And meteorologists, they call this weather, it's like within 100 feet of us, they call them microclimates. And they can be like, they can be, again, they can be really small. But so to give us an idea of how small 
a microclimate can be, and yet you can see you know really big divergences in climates in a small space. Uh, any examples from that that you've experienced or seen? Yes, there are examples you know within touching distance for all of us, but there aren't that many examples where there's there's data. And for me to really make the point early on in the the case I'm making in the book, I I used one of the few examples where scientists have actually measured. And it's a place uh, in Europe, in the Swiss Jura Mountains. And there's a, there's a mountain ridge there. And the ridge itself is, is like all ridges by definition. It's, it's, you know, it's a skinny thing. It's only two feet from one side to the other. And yet, the, the weather, the microclimate on each side of this ridge is so dramatically different that it is, it's, it's comparable to traveling 600 miles north or south. So we can literally experience, on average the same change in weather by taking two steps over a ridge as we can by traveling 600 miles north or south. And of course, that's why we travel 600 miles south on holiday sometimes. But that's, we don't have to go to these extraordinary places. That's just, you know, that's just me using some science. Um, there isn't a lot of it, but some science to prove the point. But the exciting thing is that this stuff, this, this, this incredible change over small distances is happening all around us every day. Well, you say there's even like a single tree can have a microclimate. Yeah, absolutely. And this is exactly what, uh, you know, I felt really passionate about and what drove the research is that if I, in the course of my work, I, you know, some of my best friends are meteorologists, doesn't sound quite right, but it's true. And I have conversations with them and I, I say, you know, the weather on two sides of a tree is different. And they will say, oh, you're not talking about weather, you're talking about microclimate. And, and I'm saying, well, well, let's just let's just pause here. What I'm saying is that the wind, the sun, the rain, the temperature, and quite a lot of other things change when we walk around a tree. And I think those are what we mean by weather. And they go, okay, fair cop. We, you know, you do your thing, we'll carry on doing our thing. And that and that's really what the book is about, is this this world. They it's not that they, you know, don't find it interesting. It's just there is no job there because you can't have one person talking to another person about their experiences. They walk around a tree, but we can, as individuals, take a real interest in that, and that's where the fun starts. Well, I mean, give us an example. Like, how how does a climate change around a single tree? Okay, so when uh, when the wind hits a tree, if you if you imagine a textbook sort of bulbous tree, you know whatever whatever species pops into your mind, and and the species isn't important. I'm not thinking of a conifer here. I'm thinking of sort of rounded an oak or whatever, whatever comes into your mind. What what you'll have is a, a the ground, a trunk, and then as I say, this kind of rounded bulbous canopy of the tree. When the wind hits that tree, it's an obstacle. So there are sudden air pressure changes. You know, the, the, the wind basically piles into the canopy. It can't go anywhere. So the pressure increases. And then whenever that happens, we've got a place downwind of the tree where the pressure, the air pressure drops. We've got high pressure on one side, low pressure on the other. That leads to the wind accelerating around the tree. And what that means in, in terms of our personal experience is that there is a, an acceleration of the breeze underneath the tree. So next time you see an isolated tree like an oak or something like that, on a hot day where you can feel a gentle breeze, you you will gravitate towards the tree anyway. You know, it's a great place to, to, to get some shade and cool down for a second. But whilst you're there, just notice how the breeze accelerates as you move under the tree. You are experiencing a different wind to somebody who's only 30 feet away from you. And that, and that's that's yeah, that's what it's all about. All right. So you start off 
by making the case that to, in order to see the weather, like just by looking at your environment, you can start seeing like what weather is going to be like or could be like. You have to understand some basic meteorological principles. And the first one is how heat moves. And there are three ways heat moves in our environment. So what are those ways and how do we see those different heat movement patterns in nature? Yeah, I'll, I'll just sort of uh, preface it by saying all of my work is, is based in science, and that is very important. I, I find things like folklore inspirational, and, and they do sometimes shine a light into areas that are worth me uh, rummaging around in and trying to find some good truths. But in this book and every, every, everything I've done, I need to understand the scientific principles. I need to know it's not just a, an old wives' tale. You know, the old wives' tale might point to good science, but I need the good science. And so that's what I'm doing here is just explaining you know, I, I take it as a compliment, compliment when sometimes people say to me, I'm getting flashbacks to kind of like being in school. It's kind of like, well, we have to do a little bit of school to then do the fun stuff outdoors. Because if you don't have solid building blocks, then the, the, the fun stuff you don't have confidence in. So heat moves from one, one place to another in, in three, three main ways. We've got um, radiation. So have you, you know, that, that experience where you, you're in a, a cold place, it might be snowy, if you've ever been skiing and you're sitting outside having lunch and actually you feel really quite warm, the, the heat energy is traveling directly all the way across space and hitting us as radiation. The, the black part of your jacket feels warmer than the white part. That is, that is radiation. Then we've got conduction, which is heat is, is molecules vibrating. And if you've had that experience where you open the kitchen drawer, there's a wooden spoon in it and a metal knife. The metal knife feels colder than the wooden spoon, even though we know they must both be the same temperature because they're in the same drawer. All that's happening there is the warmth is flowing faster out of our hand into the metal because metal conducts heat well and slowly into the wood because wood doesn't. And this is, this is relevant to weather because a lot of the patterns we see on the ground, and I'm thinking of things like dew and snow and, and things like and frost and things like that, have a, have a relationship with conduction. So once we understand it, we can go like, ah, I understand why there's a frost there and there isn't there. And then the third way is convection. So if a parcel of air warms up and expands, it becomes less dense than the, the air around it. It starts to rise up and that is transferring heat vertically upwards. And that underpins a lot of what we see in terms of cloud patterns and signs there. Gotcha. And then another component of weather, I think weather's, you kind of described it as a soup. There's heat and then there's liquid uh, is another part. Of it. And you have to understand how the sort of the phases of water, what happens with water as it passes through different states of matter. So like solid, liquid, and gas. So how do we see that happen in nature? Well, again, I think lots of listeners will get, get sort of uh, flashbacks, hopefully sort of happy ones. But yeah, this, this, is, uh, this is quite sort of fundamental stuff. Water, we know as a liquid, we see it every day. It's a big part of our lives. We know what it looks like when it's a solid, it's, it's, it's ice. Gas, is, it's, it's less well known. People get a little bit, not confused, but if, if you think of, of water as a gas, sometimes people think of steam. But actually, the steam there, it's in liquid form. That's why we can see it. So water can exist as water vapor, as a gas, but it's invisible. So just understanding that it's, it's moving between those forms and, and temperature is absolutely critical. We know that. You know, the, you know, on a sunny day, the, the, the puddle on the tarmac disappears much more quickly than it does on a, on a cold overcast day. So temperature is so vital to these changes of state and understanding the change of state helps us understand what clouds are going to do and whether certain things are going to happen. It's, it's all part of the kind of prediction toolkit. Well, so like something you hear a lot when you weather forecast, you're like, what does that even mean? Uh, you, you hear a meteorologist say, well, the dew point is whatever. What do they mean by dew point? Okay, so 
if we think of a parcel of air, any air anywhere in the world will have some water vapour, some water in invisible gas form in it. Even if you're over the hottest desert on the hottest day, you know, if it's a world record, you know, world record hot time, there will still be some water vapour in the air. But temperature is critical. So what happens is take your parcel of air and in a kind of thought experiment, you've got a, you've got a dial and you just start turning the temperature down. You know, a few degrees, your parcel of air, nothing happens. It'll reach a point where the air cannot hold the water vapour in it in gaseous form anymore, and it condenses down into liquid form, at which point we see it. We might see it in the same way you see steam coming out of a kettle, but another way we see it almost daily is, is as a cloud. So that's, you know, that's a, 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 really sort of, a really sort of key thing, is the relationship between invisible water in the air, which is all around us all the time for our whole lives, if the temperature drops to a certain point, that is going to turn to liquid in suspension in the air. And the point it does that is known as the dew point. And what does that tell us about the weather? Well, the, the more humid the air is, the closer to the dew point we, we are likely to be. I mean, so basically you can keep putting more and more water in gas form into the same parcel of air, but there will come a point where the air, you know, I personify everything. It sometimes sounds a bit ridiculous, but there'll come a point where the air sort of goes, no, I'm not having it as gas anymore. I, it's going to condense down uh, into liquid form. So different days, I, I take a lot of inspiration from indigenous communities as well for the, the simple reason that this isn't this isn't just good sport to them. This is life or death to a lot of them. So they don't, you know, there's, there's a lot of interesting myth and stories and legends in indigenous communities. But when it comes to nature's signs, they mean business. It's got to work. So a good example of, of this, this concept in, a, in, in an indigenous community is a, a community called the Wola. And they, they use this expression, che nat, which means rain sun. And that starts, to, you know, initially that doesn't mean anything. But, but the science behind it is what they're saying is the day starts sunny, but we know it's going to rain by the afternoon because we can feel that it is a humid day. And it is the sort of day where the amount of water vapor in the air cannot stay as gas all day. You know, then they wouldn't use these terms. They don't see it that way. But we can all have that experience and we've all had it. You know, August is a classic time for it. But you walk outside and it sometimes it just feels like a dry heat. And you sort of go, you just get a gut feel. This is this, this weather's gonna last. Sometimes you walk out there and it's that muggy, close, you know, you you you're sweating before you're running, you know, brisk walk, you know, there's sweat on your forehead. That's, you know, what indigenous people might call a rain sun. That means it's not going to take very much for the, the gas in the water gas to turn to liquid. And that's the start of very serious uh, sort of weather changes. Right. So I, I think you make the point in the book that whenever there's a lot of humidity in the air and it's warm, that typically creates an unstable environment. And that's when you get, you can get rain or thunderstorms. Yeah. So another of the, for me, one of the most fundamental and exciting and little known uh, concepts is about stability. So I talk about stable and unstable systems. So if you take a, a bowl in the kitchen and you put an apple in the bottom of the bowl and you push it up the side and let go, the apple goes back to the middle of the bowl. And you can do that 1,000 times in a row and the same thing's going to happen. It's a stable system. If something changes, it goes back to the start. It's auto-correcting. If you turn the bowl upside down and put the apple on the top and give it a nudge, it rolls off the bowl, off the table, on the floor. It doesn't go back to its start point. You know, it's, it's the sort of a small amount of mayhem. Now, our weather is either stable, I, if something changes, whether it's heat, you know, water levels, whatever, it'll just settle back to what it was. And that is literally settled, stable weather. 
But sometimes there's a small change, and the next thing, the sky is is full of ominous clouds, and and half an hour later there's a thunderstorm, and that's an unstable system. And and the air has it. It's a characteristic of the air. It's it's the gradient of temperature change with altitude. Now. You know, we're we're getting into the science. Um, you know, but the truth is, once you understand the concepts, it's not like every time you look at a sign, you have to go like, "All oh, right, I've got to start thinking about stability and all that sort of stuff." It's just to make you confident in knowing that, okay, this is an unstable atmosphere. So if I start to see clouds rising, they're not going to stop. It's all going to kick off, and there is going to be a thunderstorm. So it's it's a case of sort of being really confident, in understanding the science. But then once you've got that in the locker. Every time you see the signs, you're not sort of thinking, this is mysterious. You're like, I know what's going to happen next, and I know why it's going to happen next. We're going to take a quick break for your words from our sponsors. And now back to the show. So what's the sign for like an unstable environment? So you mentioned, I guess, that heat, like you walk out and it's kind of muggy, and you think, ah, oh, this, this isn't going to lie. It's going to get stormy. Is that one of them, or what's some other ones too? Yeah, so the the mugginess is is a, is a sort of slightly fuzzy sign and isn't is quite hard to 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 sort of get a real measure on. But there is a there is a really you know concrete solid one which is the shape of clouds. So if you look out any day, and it's one of the first things I do every single day, is you have a look out where I live. There will be clouds. You know, in the UK, <laughs> there are one or two days a year there aren't. But but most places in the world, you're going to see some clouds at some point during the day. Just have a look at their shape. If they are if they are more broad, if they're broader than they are tall, that's an indication of a stable atmosphere. So there may be change, but it's very unlikely in the next few hours that all hell is going to break loose. If you see clouds that are much taller than they are wide, that's a sign of an unstable atmosphere, and all it will take is is one. One small change in your local environment, and you can have a uh, heavy rain showers or storms. And the clouds that you're looking at, it's a certain type of cloud. It's uh, what is the cumulus? Which one is it? That yeah, yeah. So I I try and uh, keep the Latin to to a minimum because I don't think it brings people into the fun side of the subject. But I do break the the clouds we need to understand into three broad families. There's there's cumulus, which is the the fluffy sheep ones. Start of the Simpsons, you know, I think everybody knows them. They're kind of, they are cartoon clouds. Then we've got stratus, which are the blankets, which can, you know, cover a thousand miles. They're pretty dull to look at. They're just these long, flat blankets. And cirrus are the wispy ones. You know, in the modern lifestyle, people can go a month and not see cirrus. It's it's out there most days, but it, 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 doesn't, it doesn't grab our attention. But there are lots of wonderful signs in it. So the one we're talking about here is cumulus. And cumulus tells us lots of things instantly. It is basically a marker, and it is saying that there is a thermal directly underneath me. There is a column of air rising underneath that cloud. That is the only reason that a cumulus is there. Because what's happened is there's been some local heating. So the sun's radiation hits a darker patch. I talked about the, the black part of our, our jackets, you know, might be warmer than the white part on a, on a hot day. It's exactly the same in the landscape. The sun's radiation hits a dark coniferous forest or perhaps the dark tarmac of a, a city. And that heats up much more than the paler colors all around it. That leads to a column of air rising through convection. It reaches a point where the temperature has dropped to the point where the water vapor can't stay as gas, turns to liquid. Voila, we have a cloud and we have a cumulus cloud. Now, the shape of that cloud so the cloud itself is telling us that's where the thermal is, and we understand why it's there. So it's making a map of the ground. You can you can spot islands, woodlands, cities, cliffs. There are lots of things you can do with those clouds. You can you know there's a good tradition of of you using them to make a map. 
but they are also mapping what's going on in the atmosphere. So the shape of them, how tall they are relative to how wide they are, is, is mapping the stability. So we've got two maps there, a map of what's going on on the ground and a map of what's going on in the air just in one cloud. And not only do you, if you can look at the, the height, so if it's, if it's taller than it is wider, good chance you're going to see some, some rain or thunderstorm. But another sign you can look at a cumulus cloud is if it's lower, that's another sign that bad weather is likely. Yeah, I talk about the seven golden patterns, which is just my shorthand for after many, many years, decades of me weighing what does and doesn't work, what is practical out there. The, there are there are this small collection of things and the, the shape we've we've talked about in terms of tall or, or wide, the height is is actually the one before that in terms of, of length of forecast. So everybody kind of notices the difference between a, a sunny day and a day where the clouds feel like they're almost touching the, the rooftops and it's 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 you know it's dull or it's rainy all day and stuff like that. Everybody notices that scale of difference. But what very few people spot, and it's very easy to spot, is how for you know, two days perhaps, the clouds have been almost coming down steps. They've been getting steadily lower. So if we just get into the habit of, you know, you don't have to spend, you don't even have to spend 10 minutes each day. You can do this in a few seconds. You just look out in the morning and you go, okay, I'm seeing these sorts of clouds. Are they cumulus? Are they stratus? Are they cirrus? What height are they? And then you look back, you know, maybe your lunch break, you just look again, it's only 20 seconds. And one thing I actually encourage, it seems seems sort of counterintuitive or, or going against the grain of what I do, is I, act, I actually encourage people to cheat, by which I mean, when you're new to this stuff, you want the confidence that, that you're going to learn something that works. So what I say to people is, cheat, look at the forecast, and when you see a spell, let's say you've had five days of fair weather, and, and the forecasters are telling you, the meteorologists are telling you, you're, you're, you're in for a couple of days of bad weather and rain. That's a really good time to cheat because you they're basically, basically saying to you, the signs are coming, have a look for them. And then what we do is we notice the clouds getting steadily lower over those, you know, five days, it's blue skies, then we see cirrus, then we see, you know, a blanket of cirrus, and then we see some stratus. And what we notice is it's getting steadily lower. And then, and then you know, we, we just start adding these patterns. And, and the cheating is good at this stage because what it means is if you do it a few times, you get to the point where you have confidence in the signs. And that's the moment where it gets exciting because you then see the sign and your brain will say to you, bad weather's coming. Another sign that I thought was interesting was you can start using immediately. If you just look at the clouds, like this cumulus clouds, usually they they look like the Super Mario Brothers world clouds. They're all kind of fluffy, even on the bottom. But if at the bottom, the clouds are looking kind of jagged and not not as fluffy and clean, that's a sign that, yeah, you could probably, good chance you might have rain. Yeah, absolutely. The the flat bottomed, you know, neat cartoon style cloud is 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 a typical sort of settled sign because what it's basically saying is at this at this altitude, the temperature is at the dew point and the the, the gaseous water vapor is turning to visible liquid, i.e. a cloud at this line. And it is logical. It's not, we shouldn't expect the atmosphere to have totally different temperatures as you as you move along the same altitude. So if we see a cloud that's got a flat block bottom, we can say, okay, things are steady, things are stable, things are, you know, things are not, not kicking off in any way. If we start to see uh, it's ruffled, it's jagged, it's got bits look, looking like they're almost breaking off underneath, we say to ourselves, okay, why is that happening? Okay, well, one thing we can be pretty confident of is there's, there's some unusual temperature changes going on at the bottom of the cloud. And the most common reason is that rain is falling out of the cloud, cooling the air beneath it. 
And that's leading to the dew point being reached beneath the cloud, which is why it looks so uneven. So you can actually, again, a really good kind of hack on this is if you see a cloud in the distance and you're pretty sure, you know, you can sometimes actually see the rain falling out of it. Just notice the bottom of that cloud is not flat. And, and then, you know, another time you see one that's perfectly flat and you can be absolutely certain that it's not raining underneath. All right. So a few signs to look for again, just to recap, look at if it's if the cloud is taller than it is wider, good chance it could be some rain. Another one, if you notice the clouds getting lower throughout the, you know, through progression of days, sign bad weather could be coming. Then also that, that jagged bottom. And you also make this point that you recommend checking clouds after lunch as opposed to the morning. Why is that? Yeah, that's particularly true on a on what appears to be a fair weather day. You know, if if we if we take that sort of slightly um that situation we've all been in where you you look out of the window in the morning and it's blue skies and you you maybe kind of message your you know friends or whatever and you say let, let let's meet in the the afternoon or or the early evening. What it's quite important to do is is by lunchtime you want to be having a really good look at how the clouds are behaving because the sun rises in the morning, and the, at the moment the sun rises, the ground is is cold. It, it's had a whole night time of releasing its its energy out to space, and it's it's cold, you know, cold for the season certainly. But by by the middle of the morning, the sun has started to heat the landscape, and certainly by lunchtime, there will be these thermals. So there will be these pockets of air rising. Now, if the if the atmosphere is stable not much happens. They try and go up a bit, but they can't because there's a, there's a layer of warm air on top of the warm air that's trying to rise and that stops them. But if this kind of, this, this daytime warming uh, meets an unstable atmosphere, then it sets off a, a slight chain reaction. And that's when we start to get the taller clouds. So you shouldn't expect to see massively tall clouds at the very, very start of the day when you're, when you're practiced. And this is what I'm looking for. You're looking for, you know, really quite subtle things then. But when you're starting out, look from lunchtime onwards because the land has had time to heat up. The thermals have been have uh, been created, and that's when you can start to see whether whether these these towering clouds are are building up. So speaking like looking at the clouds or the sky for some signs about what the weather might do in the next day or so. I'm sure everyone's heard that saying. I mean, I think G- even Jesus said this in the Bible, like red skies in morning, sailors take warning, red skies at night, sailors delight. Is there anything to that saying? Yes. And and I've, over the years, had a fun wrestle with lots of weather law. And that is one of the one of the best. It's brilliant on lots of levels. The most important is that it, it works in a, in a weather forecasting sense. And the reason it works is... There's one half of it that's more dependable, and that is the the red sky at night, sailor's delight, or over here we sometimes hear shepherd's delight, same deal. What we're seeing there is, and so many of nature's signs that are are strong and interesting and and popular are the ones that put two very simple things together to give you you know a lot more than you you thought you might get, and that's what we've we've got going on here. What we've got going on here is red sky at night. Okay, why is it red? Okay, if it's red sky at night. That's telling us that we can see a long way to the west. If if the weather's terrible, you never see a red sky. There are too many clouds in the way. It, it turns red because the the other the other colours are filtered out by the atmosphere when the when the sun is having to pass through so much air. But the only thing we need to know now is if it's a red sky, you know, at sunset, we can see all the way to the sunset. There is there is not enough clouds or even water vapor or anything to filter out that light. The other very simple bit is because of the way the Earth rotates. Most of our weather in the northern temperate zones, which is 
you know, most of North America and most of Europe and lots of other places that, you know, that use this sort of weather law, most of our weather comes from the West. So two simple things. Visibility is great in the direction the weather is coming from. That is a very positive sign. Uh, red sky in the morning, shepherd's warning. We're just flipping that on its head. But we're, what we're saying is we can see a long way to the east, but typically that weather has gone through. So it's not a guarantee that bad weather is coming. But quite often we notice a red sky in the morning when the sun is bouncing off clouds and those clouds can't be to the east of us. Otherwise, we wouldn't be seeing the sun. So again, we put the two pieces together and it's basically saying the, the good weather's in the past, the bad weather's probably in the future. And this is giving some, this saying is giving you some insights about cold and warm fronts, basically, like on a, it's, this is like bigger scale weather. You're not, it's not going to tell you like what weather's going to be like in the next you know, a couple of hours, but you can get an idea of like, well, there's a good chance we're gonna have some unstable weather coming in soon. Yeah, absolutely. And all of these things grow in strength and their ability to predict powerfully is, is about building a jigsaw. So that's Red Sky at Night, uh, Sailor's Delight is a nice big piece, but it'll never give you the whole picture. You start tuning into some of the other things we've been talking about. And, and to be honest, you know, there are several hundred, you know, in the book. And that's what it's all about is I don't expect somebody to go out there and look for several hundred, but I would expect someone to go, ah, I've seen that sign. I'm going to look for two or three others. And by the time you've got three, you're going, okay, you know, I, I'm building a picture here. And your, your probability of success goes from 60% to 90% quite quickly. Another component of weather that we experience, you know, very viscerally, we, we feel it is wind. Uh, anything that that the wind can tell us about the weather, what it might be like in the next couple hours or days? Yeah, I, I like to think of it, and the way I describe it in the book is as a needle and gauge. So we, we are all used to the idea that any gauge that we're monitoring, if it goes from, from one side to the other, something, something big has changed. And it's, it's exactly the same is true of the main wind patterns. So if you just get into the habit of just taking a rough interest of where the wind is coming from, so if you're in a city, you know, you just, just take an interest which direction the clouds are moving over the tops of the buildings. Or even, you know, if, if it's a bit more open, you can look at things like flags or feel it and things like that. It doesn't matter how you, you're just getting some loose idea what the weather is. You, you know, to start with, bring in forecasts if you want to. If it says, okay, you know, we've got a wind from the west, great. And if, if, you, if you then notice that change significantly, and by that, I mean not sort of 10 or 20 degrees. I'm talking about 90 degrees here. If suddenly the wind is coming from the south then that is a very, very strong sign that there is going to be a major weather change. And the reason is that this is at the large scale. This is overlapping with the traditional you know, meteorology. We're, we're stepping into what I call the known world here, as in this is, this is what forecasts are touching on as well. But there's no reason why we can't bring that into our toolkit. If you get those major weather, uh, major wind direction changes, the, it's shorthand really for the air mass you are in is about to be kicked out of the way by another air mass. So you might be in a, in a cold, dry um, bit of air. There might be a warm, wet bit of air just trying to trying to barge in. And the wind direction change is, is, is one of the strongest, most dependable warnings that that's going to happen. You will have heard the expression, a front is about to go through. That's another bit of shorthand for the air mass you're in is about to, is about to be kicked out. And whenever that happens, we see big weather changes. Well, the other interesting thing about wind is not only can tell you about weather changes, but going back to your natural navigation, it can also tell you about 
your environment and you know what's going on around you because like the wind like you changes as it hits different objects like you mentioned earlier like at the very beginning with the tree like a, a tree is breezier right underneath it because there's some wind change going on some air pressure change any other places where people might notice that it might be like if they're you know 100 feet it's not it doesn't maybe there's a light breeze but they just walk 100 feet and then it just feels like it's a super strong like they're in a hurricane almost yeah, absolutely. I, I like to think of all of these signs as characters because I think we only develop a relationship and it helps memory and it helps us spot these things. We're human beings. We like relationships. So that's what I'm, I'm, I'm doing quite often is I'm saying I introduce this as a sign because it's going to tell you something. But as you grow to know it and you, you spend time with them, they become characters. And these, these uh, microclimate wind characters are, are fantastic because, you know, what, what, you know, what you can do today, any day, listen to the forecast, it'll say the wind will be coming, you know, from the Southwest at 15 miles an hour, go for a 10 minute walk. I guarantee you, you will not feel that wind. And if you do, it'll be after feeling about nine other winds. And the reason for that is that, again, the forecasters, they're really interested in the, in the, in the weather that's, you know, hundred feet over our head. That's the closest they can get to us. The second the wind touches the ground, all sorts of other characters are created. A nice simple one is a gap wind. So we've all had that experience where you're walking down a, a city street and there's a gust of wind, and then there's no wind, and then there's a gust of wind, and then there's no wind. Well, the wind is just being squeezed between the buildings. And that is a gap wind. That character is the gap wind. And winds can be squeezed between mountains. Uh, I've been thrown all over the place on a small boat when they're squeezed between volcanic islands in the Atlantic. But that same physics works all the way down to two trees. You can be walking along, suddenly feel a small gust and go, well, of course, there are two trees there. The wind is it's like putting a thumb over the end of a hose. The, the wind is accelerating between the two trees. But that's just one of you know a dozen of these local wind characters. And, and as you get to know them, it, it is actually an important part of the, the forecasting experience because it's fun just to notice them and go, oh, I know you. Hello, old friend. That's, that, you know, that adds a, a layer to our experience. But in practical telling what's going on, it is important because a sudden cold gust of wind can be a sign of a thunderstorm very near you. But if you know some of the other characters, you go, no, 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 that's that's not a thunderstorm when I'm feeling there. That's cold air coming down off the side of a, a hill. That's a different thing. That's a catabatic wind. So we we once we know all these little characters, we walk out there and every single day you can meet a few of them. Yeah, I thought some of the most interesting sections of the book, all of it was interesting, but I thought what was really interesting is how cities affect weather. And you talk about the wind, right? The ways, particularly in the United States, how cities are designed on a grid, it creates those tunnels where you get that, it gets really gusty. Any other ways cities influence the weather? Yeah, definitely. I've I've mentioned how they, they soak up the sun's radiation really, really well. So there's a an urban heat island effect. And I think we've all had some experience of that. If you've traveled from a, a rural area into, into a big city, we, we instinctively, it's not just the hecticness. It, it is genuinely a few degrees warmer all around the year, but particularly when it's sunny. And that leads to all sorts of secondary effects. So where anywhere that heats up more than the surrounding areas, it's going to create thermals. So towns create their own clouds. Sometimes it's just a few puffy, friendly ones, and it's just fun to notice them. But, but cities can actually create their own rain showers. They'll typically be at the downwind end of the uh, of the town, or possibly even just downwind of the whole the whole town or, or city. The other thing they do is this thermal they create is is it's invisible to us unless it creates clouds, and then we see them sitting on the top like markers. But it is it's actually quite a solid in terms of uh, the fluid of, of air. So when weather is trying to pass over a city 
and it's got this column of warm air rising up the top of it. It splits the weather. So, you know, there'll be, there'll be a few times if you're, if you're in a high building in a city where you get the kind of view where you can see a little weather system, a few clouds approaching the city, and it literally splits and goes around it, you know, like a, like a stream splitting around a, a rock in the middle of it. But yeah, it's, it's best to assume, you know, every single, not just, not just a city is different to the, to the country, but every building has its own things. When a wind hits a building, it, it creates six different winds. So yeah, whichever scale we look at in a town, there are characters to find there. Anything about, you know, let's talk about some other things, looking at just plants. Can plants tell us anything about the weather in our area? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the plants is an interesting area. It's, it's quite romantic. And I think, uh, if I'm honest, I, you know, I, I, I love the idea of plants whispering to us and telling us things, but I'm, you know, I'm rooted in science. So I'm not, I'm not just going to stick with the folklore that says, oh, that, that pretty little pink plant there when it closes rain is coming. I want to know, is that true? And if it's true, why, what's going on? So what, I, what I've done over the years is, is research what, what works and what doesn't and why, and can we use it? And, and what we've got is two broad areas here. The first is that flowers, for example, are trying to attract insects as pollinators, but it's quite a fragile system. So, so, you know, a fair few of them, you know, there are some daisies I can see where I'm sitting at the moment, will react dynamically to light levels because if there's a sudden drop in light levels, that's a sign that it's about to rain. But this is where I have to be honest, and I'm very honest in the book, they are reacting. They don't have some sort of, they're not tapped into some amazing kind of secret computer that knows what's going on. And that, that, if they are, that's a conversation for another time. But, it, but what I mean is they are reacting. So they are actually reacting to things that we can sense. And, and, and by the time, you know, somebody spent even a few hours thinking about these sorts of signs, they can actually pick up stuff even before the flower has done. But that's not to say it isn't fun to notice it. It's, it's, it's all part of the rich tapestry. But there's another whole area which I don't think has been tackled before I wrote this book in, in any sort of popular science way, certainly not that I've come across, which is the idea that every plant is telling us something about its climate and its microclimate. And by definition, that is telling us what the future weather conditions are, are likely to be. So in practical terms, what I encourage people to do in, in the, you know, the most basic practical sense is if you're under a rain shower, have a look at the plants around you. Because by definition, a rain shower isn't happening everywhere. It's happening on your patch for a reason. Rain showers happen more in certain places than others. Even, even a couple of miles away, there'll be a big difference in terms. We get more, more rain showers on the windward side of hills. We've mentioned cities, that sort of thing. But the plants are picking up on that. And evolution dictates that only, you know, only certain plants are going to survive in certain habitats. So that's what I encourage people to do is if you notice, you'll start to notice, if you take an interest in these signs, you'll start to notice that rain showers are much more likely in certain places. Then you start to spot the plants there. You go, oh, I'm seeing certain of these sort of wildflowers there, but I don't see them everywhere. Then the next time you see a patch of those wildflowers, our brain is just perfectly kind of engineered to put two and two together and go, this is a quite likely place for there to be a rain shower if there's one coming in. Well, I thought one interesting plant sign was uh, leaves are typically pointier if it rains a lot in that area. Yes. And that's, that's a lovely, um, lovely sort of evolutionary sort of sign there where we see all these fantastic shapes around us and our brain is, is overloaded with data and information all day, every day. So there's a temptation to kind of like filter that out and go, well, they're just kind of pretty patterns. They're kind of, but every single shape, every color, everything we sense has meaning. And in that case, 
the pointy leaves have just evolved to be very good at channeling rainwater off the leaf. You know, water's water's really heavy on the, on the scale of a leaf. You know, more than a few raindrops. You know, that that's the equivalent of us sort of probably carrying fifty kilograms. They don't want to be doing it. So, an evolutionary design makes the the leaf pointier if it's having to cope with a lot of rain. What about the sayings? I think everyone's heard about animals being able to predict the weather. So, like you know, if it's a storm's coming, cows start laying down, or roosters start spinning around in circles. Anything to that? Those things. Yes, and one of my sort of guiding philosophies is nothing is random. Uh, and when it comes to the animals, they anyone who's spent more than a couple of hours outdoors knows that for every minute you're outdoors, the more sensitive you have to be to various things. You know, you can get away with being too cold for a quarter of an hour, um, you know, dressed inappropriately and everything else. You'll be absolutely fine. You can't do that for three days. And yet a lot of the animals we're talking about are doing it for years, or certainly months at a time. So they, they are always adjusting their behavior to, to make the microclimate better for them. So if they're too hot, they'll go under shade, things like that, we, we all know. But there is some untruths. Cows don't generally lie down before, before rain. I think, I think what's happened there, although I certainly haven't, either through my own observations or talking to farmers or looking at the science, I can't find anything solid to back that up. But I think it's a case of there's a difference between correlation and causation there. So what's happening is we've talked about how the, the clouds grow taller in the afternoon as the thermal set up, showers are more likely in the afternoon, Cows are often chewing the cud in the afternoon. They like to lie down when they chew the cud. We get showers and cud chewing at the same time. They happen to be lying down. That's that's the best kind of summary of that. But on a more sort of fun level, all herd animals behave noticeably differently if there's bad weather coming in. Basically, if animals feel threatened by anything, we'll just stick with herd animals for a moment. They will congregate together into a tighter bunch and they will, they will tend to move closer to home in inverted commas, wherever they feel secure. So where I live here, there are lots of sheep farms around me. If the weather is set fair, they're, they're spread out. You know, there's, there's a big gap between each individual sheep and they're all over the tops of the hills. For hours before bad weather hits, the gaps between the animals get smaller and they're, and they're coming down the hill closer to the, to the, the farmstead. But if we take uh, birds, for example, birds are even more sensitive you know, if a sheep or a cow gets caught in a shower, it's it's uncomfortable, but it's not life threatening. But but for for the smaller the animal you are, you know, all the way down to butterflies, it can become life threatening. So we tend to find their behaviour is much much more sensitive. So birds change from song to either silence or alarm calls before bad weather hits. And one of my favourites is, you know, you, you will have picked up. I love when you can put two simple things together and come up with something a bit more exciting. So birds, you'll notice whether it's on rooftops or trees. Birds face into wind generally. It's it's good. It's good practice. It, it's more comfortable for them. Their feathers aren't ruffled, but also it's much easier for them to take off into wind. So, on average, birds face into wind when they're perching. Now we know that a big change in wind direction is going to forecast a major change in weather. So a really fun thing is if you see the birds facing one way in the morning and a different direction in the afternoon, within 24 hours, it's probably going to rain. So there's a lot, like you said, there's, you've talked about, there's hundreds of signs you talk about in the book. We've talked about quite a few. And this science of like this reading the weather isn't, it's a science, but it's also, it's more of an art. You kind of have to start putting things together layer upon layer. For someone who wants to get started with this, like, like today, like after they listen to this podcast, like what are some things that are easy to, to pick up on quickly to start deciphering the secret world of weather? Yeah, I think I think you want to look for the look for the the big stuff. 
So shape of clouds and and wind direction, if you're if you're interested in noticing big change go through, and then pair that with with the the microclimate stuff as well. Just take a real interest when you notice a temperature change or or a slight sort of gust of wind or something like that. And just say to yourself, why has that happened? And don't be frustrated if you can't answer it straight away. The answer is there. Nothing's happened. No, none of this stuff is random. Nature doesn't really do random. So, so the act of just sort of asking, you know, why have I just felt a gust there? And, and then maybe the first two or three times the answer won't be obvious, but then you will go, ah, oh, that is a gap wind. And then you, our brain likes that. Our brain really likes it when we solve small puzzles. It gives us, I'm not a brain scientist, but I'm guessing it's something like dopamine or something like that. We just get a little reward. So that'll, that'll you know, nudge you on to, to sense the, the next thing. So have a look at the big stuff, the major sort of wind direction and the cloud shapes, and then ask yourself every single time, you know, over a sort of five-minute period when you notice the temperature change, yeah, I mean, a really fun thing is just notice how, if you're in direct sunlight, how the temperature changes when you when you're when you have something over your head. So if you can get yourself under a tree but still in sunlight, so you you know if it's the middle of the day, you're likely to be on the south side of the tree and, and not right up against the the trunk. You, you'll notice how hot you suddenly feel, and there you're you're putting some pieces together. Okay, the radiation from the sun is warming me up, but it can't escape anywhere through through convection. That's why it's it's a few degrees warmer here. I mean, on cold days, that means you can you can sit out. I, I sat out in minus two a couple of couple of um, months ago, and and in what I call these these kind of like sun pockets, and you're perfectly comfortable because you're just using these little tools and having fun with it. Well, Tristan, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about the book and your work? Oh, thanks a lot, Brett. My website, naturalnavigator.com, has loads of information about the book and my, my work generally. And I'm, I'm on all the, the usual social media channels as well. I'm on uh, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, that, that sort of thing. Uh, thanks so much for having me. I really enjoyed the chat. Yeah, Tristan, it's always a pleasure. My guest today was Tristan Gooley. He's the author of the book, The Secret World of Weather. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find out more information about his work at his website, naturalnavigator.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash weather, where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you can find our podcast archives as well as thousands of articles that we've written over the years about pretty much anything you think of. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLINESS at checkout for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android and iOS and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us your review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank Thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think we get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, it's Brett McKay. Remind you to not only listen to the one podcast, but put what you've heard into action. Mm-hmm.